was looking um, online how long ago it was when we went verse by verse through the book of Revelation. It seems like not that long ago to me in my mind that we, we were at the theater, though, whenever we did this uh, in the history of our church. But we went line by line, verse by verse, through the entire book of Revelation back in 2014, eight years ago. I'm like, wow. I remember prepping for that preaching series over the book of Revelation. The nine months leading up to that teaching series, I read more books in that nine months that I think it, I ever had before in my entire life. As far as a, that period of time, I, I was just getting any and every book over the book of Revelation, every commentary, every end time book, and there, there's a, an unlimited amount of books out there over those issues. And let me just tell you, I was just chewing them up, spitting them out. I mean, I was just knocking them out. I, I have a ton of them at my office. I just, I, there was so much time put into that teaching series. I don't think I've ever put that much time in preparation towards a, a teaching series since that time. Um, but it's, it takes so much because there's so much to consider because we're talking about end times or eschatology is, is the uh, term for that. And there's a ton of interest amongst Christians whenever you talk about end times. And, and so people are curious. They, and, and that's good, right? I mean, that's good that we're curious about that. The Bible has a lot to say about the end of time, and I want to know what it has to say. Our church during that season of time, we grew numerically uh, in addition to spiritually. I remember it seemed like as I was teaching through that series, there was a new family at church every single Sunday. And a lot of people who went to other churches took a break even from those churches and came to our church, and they would tell me straight up, hey, uh, we're not we're not transferring our membership. We're, we're not going to start coming to your church. Our church just doesn't teach over Revelation, and it's rarely spoken of, it, but, and you are right now, so we just want to come here until you're done with this teaching series and, and, li and learn about the book of Revelation because we just don't know much about it. And, and I had several families, uh, three to four families, that said they were going to do this, and they did. They just stayed for those 30-some weeks that we spent in Revelation, and then they went back to their church. They kept their word. Um, but there's a lot of interest when it comes to that subject. So when you're having those sermons and when you're talking about those issues, one chapter that comes up in the Bible and it, uh, when you're studying through that uh, eschatology is chapter 13 of Mark, and that's where we're at right now. So that's one of the reasons. People get excited about the book of Revelation for the same reason they get excited about chapter 13 of Mark. Because at least some of it, if not all of it, is about the end of time, and so it piques our interest. Why would, why, again, why would that not pique our interest? I mean, the, what the Bible teaches is that the world as we know it right now, sinful and broken and corrupt, the world as we know it will cease to be someday. And Jesus will return, and he's going to make all things new again. He's going to make it all right. He's going to restore this reality that we know back to what it was before sin entered creation and corrupted it. He's going to restore it to paradise. So when you're reading through the Bible, it starts out paradise. Sin enters the equation, corrupts everything. Then you read the whole Bible, and it's about that corruption. And it's about the gospel that, re that redeems us in the midst of that corruption. And then at the end of the Bible, the conclusion is that paradise is restored. Back to what it was before it was marred by sin. So yeah, Obviously, like, I can't wait to live in a version of this world that is free from sin, from sin. and I want to know about the, the events leading up to that point in time. So when it, when it comes, though, again, to this 
end times discussion, you, every one of those end times book is going gonna, is gonna to have a whole chapter dedicated to chapter 13 of Mark. And it's parallel in Matthew and it's parallel in Luke. Because Jesus here is prophesying. This is predictive prophecy. There's different kinds of prophecy. This is predictive prophecy. He is talking about future events, and he is teaching his disciples about the signs to look for in order to anticipate these coming future events that hadn't happened yet. And he's talking about two things, as we'll get through this chapter. Two things. He's talking about the destruction of the temple that is still yet future to them, but in our past, because it happened in 70 A.D., and he's also talking about his second coming, his return, the second advent of Christ that is still in our future even at this point. And so as you're reading through chapter 13, here's the trick. All you have to do is figure out when he's talking about the destruction of the temple and when he's talking about his second coming. And if you can figure that out, you have chapter 13 figured out. Well, let me just tell you, there's a lot written on it. And there's a lot of good arguments that go both ways. Again, I mentioned this last week. Some, some people think all of chapter 13 is about the destruction of the temple. So it's all been fulfilled. Some people think none, it, like the, the destruction of the temple was more or less just a dress rehearsal and kind of a foreshadowing of his second coming. But all of these things are ultimately about his second coming. So none of it's been fulfilled. And then still yet, there are some people like myself who think some of this is about the destruction of the temple and some of this is about a second coming. And everything we studied up to this point, which is just the first 13 verses, has been about the destruction of the temple. So today, we're taking verses 14 through 31. You may be thinking today, are we biting off more than we could chew? The answer is yes. We are biting off more than we could chew today. I wish I could bring the stack of commentaries that I went through this week, because I, I love teaching through these texts, but it's very intimidating. But let me tell you, I did a ton of homework, ton of homework this week, and my goal is not to show up on a Sunday morning and unload all of that information on you and just overwhelm you so I can show you how much I know. Sometimes we pastors do that, and it's just not helpful. I don't want to show you how much I know. I want you to understand this text in a helpful, comprehensive way. And so I get all of that information and I try to present portions of this text in a way that is understandable. So just know, I'm not turning over every single rock. You may have more questions than you have answers by the time I get done with this sermon. You may have questions in which you want to challenge some of the things that I say. Do it. I, I have a ton more information in here that I would love to tell you about and, uh, but I can't include everything in this sermon. So I'm not going to exhaust everything, but I want to take us through this in a way that I understand it. And I think it'll be very helpful. So we're going we're gonna to pick up at verse 14. He's just, those first 13 verses, look for this sign, look for this sign, look for this sign. And then you'll know the destruction of the temple is right around the corner. What were those signs? He said, look for, look for a time in which false messiahs start showing up. You'll know that'll, that'll build as you get closer to the destruction of the temple. Look for, for famines. There'll be more and more famines as you get closer to the destruction of the temple. There'll be more and more earthquakes. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars leading up to that destruction of the temple. Well, he's not done. The biggest sign I didn't even cover last week. He said there's going to be one sign especially that you really need to know in order to know that the destruction of the temple is really right there. 
it is just you it's it's within arm's length when you're whenever you see this particular sign and i saved it for for this sunday because there's no way i could include it and all the things we talked about this uh, past Sunday. But here it is. Let's just read verse 14. Here's the big sign. Man, you really got to know this one if you're a first century Christian following Jesus. It says this. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. When you see the abomination of desolation. That, that, that temple's getting ready to fall to the ground. Just know, you need to head for the hills. That's where that expression comes from. Head for the hills! So, when you see the abomination of desolation, all, everything, all these other signs, they were the beginning of the birth pains. Remember he, he described earlier? But now, it, it's imminent. It's right, it is right there. The abomination of desolation. So be looking for the abomination of desolation. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, What's the abomination of desolation? We just got to figure that out. How can I be looking for something that I don't know? Well, here's the better question. The better question is who? Who is the abomination of desolation? Now, what, we, what do you think of when you think of abomination? Like, well, if you're kind of a nerd like myself, you think of the Marvel comic villain in our context, right? Abomination! That's the, if you watch the cartoons and stuff, that's the, that's the big ugly green guy that's like the, the bad version of Hulk. That's abomination, okay? But that's not what we're supposed to be looking for. That's, that, that would make sense in our context. What would they be thinking about when they're told to look out for the abomination of desolation? Well, did you notice there in verse 14 it said in parentheses, let the reader understand? That, that's because Mark, as he's writing this gospel, he literally puts in the notes. He knows, he knows elders are going to be teaching this to Christians. And he puts in parentheses, hey, when you talk about the, the abomination of desolation, let the reader understand. So as we're reading this together, I'm doing what the text is telling me to do. I'm making sure you don't get abomination confused with the Marvel comic superhero or villain, and you know who they are thinking about. So the abomination of desolation, there is somebody that would have came to their mind immediately, immediately, because that is, that is a reference to an Old Testament prophecy that was fulfilled before their day. So the Old Testament prophecy, that Old Testament language, the abomination of desolation, you can write this in your notes because I'm not going to go back and read them every, every text. This is in Daniel 9, verse 27. It's referenced in Daniel 11:31 and Daniel 12:11. You can go back there. And Daniel, back in his, his day, he was also prophesying. He was one of the prophets, and he was he was, having a, he was writing down a predictive prophecy here. And it was a prophecy that was eventually fulfilled in 167 B.C. So roughly a couple hundred years before Jesus is, is prophesying this, Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled. Everybody knew Daniel's prophecy. They knew what it was, in refer, what it was referring to. And they would have thought of this particular person in 167 A, or B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes, this Greek ruler, the Seleucid ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, the fourth. He entered into Jerusalem. He rolled up in there and put the smack down like the Greeks did everywhere back in that time. He put the smack down on Jerusalem. And you can, you can actually read about this if you really wanted to do your homework. Again, I can't, I can't show you every single detail here because we'd be here for weeks and weeks and weeks. 
Uh, have you heard of the Apocrypha? This is a, a grouping of books in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some of your Bibles, if you have like a HarperCollins study Bible or something like that, it will include the Apocrypha. And those are the intertestamental books that are not inspired scripture, but they are uh, fascinating and inter interesting. They have a lot of history recorded in them. You can read in 1 Maccabees, uh, which was a Jewish, Jewish family during this time. Uh, a lot of Jewish uh, wars taking place and things like that. So, so you can read in there what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes. But here's what he did. He rolled up and he wanted to put the hammer down on the Jews. He didn't just want to beat them. He wanted to humiliate the Jews. So when you would come and you would conquer a nation, Greeks, man, they're ruthless in this time. They didn't just want to conquer you. They, they, they wanted to just desecrate the temple. They wanted to embarrass you. They wanted to eliminate all of your beliefs and then make you take all of, make their beliefs your beliefs. And they would force you to do this or you're going to die. So Antiochus rolled up into Jerusalem and he, uh, he forced them to quit worshiping God in all the ways that they would normally worship God. So he outlawed the reading of the Torah. He hunted down every, every copy of the Torah and he burned it. He was burning it as many as he could find. If you were a mother and you had a baby that you wanted to circumcise and you were caught doing that, you would be hanged in the streets, literally. Mothers, they were, they were hanged in the streets because they were circumcising their babies. They're like, no, you, you don't get to do Jewish customs anymore. This is, this is outlawed. And so if you were caught um, adhering to the Sabbath, you were executed. You weren't allowed to do anything Jewish. And so uh, he, took it, he took it this far. He, took, he was Greek, remember, so the Greek god Zeus is who he would have worshipped. He went into the temple. He went into the holy of holies of the temple. Remember how the temple's like an onion? Like the, there's the court of the Gentiles. Everybody can roll up in there. But then beyond that, there's the, the court of the women. And so uh, Gentiles couldn't go in that part. And then there's the, you know, it goes in and in and in to get to the, the court of the priests. And so the women couldn't go in there. And then eventually you get to the holy of holies. Only the high priest was allowed in that room. This is how the temple functioned. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes, he just rolled up in there. He just marched right in. This is my... This is mine now. We're going to worship Zeus now. He built an altar on top of the altar uh, for Yahweh, and he sacrificed pigs on that altar. Oh, you guys don't eat pigs? You think that's unclean? Bring some pigs in here. We're going to sacrifice pigs on this altar because this is Zeus's house now. He, so, I mean, he was just humiliating the Jews. It was, it was just an awful, it was the worst case imaginable to, to Jews. And so he would even have... Uh, you know, one of the biggest uh, sins that was emphasized in that day, and you can tell by Jesus preaching, he, he const constantly mentioned sexual immorality. That was a really big deal. So he, what he did was he brought in prostitutes to be in the temple, and that's where you came to have sex with prostitutes. So all the Greek soldiers and stuff, hey, where, where we find all the prostitutes? They're in the temple now. That's what you do in the temple now. So, you, I mean, just trying to humiliate them. The, the, the most disgusting, the most repulsive things that they could think of that would offend Jews the most, that's what they were trying to do in the temple. And so Daniel prophesied about that moment, and then it happened. And so fast forward 200 years from that, roughly, you got Jesus prophesying right here. And he's using that Old Testament prophetic language, and he's calling that person to mind in their minds, so he could say, just before the destruction of the temple, someone like that's going to roll up in here. And when that abomination of desolation rolls up in here and goes into the Holy of Holies, where he ought not be, you better head for the hills. 
And so they would have known all about Antiochus Epiphanes for the same reason you and I know about Robert E. Lee, you know, that, in, in the Civil War. It would have, they would have called it to mind just like that because that's roughly about the same time frame. And so when a guy like that rolls up in the temple, head for the hills. Here's, here's what else he says. He goes on in verse 15. Let the one who is on his housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. He's saying, hey, listen, when, whenever that a guy like Antiochus Epiphanes rolls up, the abomination of desolation, don't even go back for your jacket. If you're standing on top of your house doing your laundry and you see that army at the gates, Get up out of there. Roll out. Don't even grab stuff. You better hope your wife's not pregnant. You better hope you're not nursing your infant that, during that time. You better just pray it's not during winter because you're going to be on the run, and it's going to be miserable if, it's, if, the, if that's the scenario for you. So Jesus, he's preparing them for this really bad moment. And guess what? Guess what? Just before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., that's exactly what happened. Abomination of desolation. The abomination that led to desolation and emptiness of worship. That rolled up in a man named Titus. General Titus of the Roman army. He rolled up in there. He was that abomination and he was standing where he ought not be. He walked up into the temple. He put Roman symbolism all over the place and basically did the same thing Antiochus did 200 years before. This is mine now. This is mine now. And, of course, he went on to destroy the temple. Now, again, had you been a follower of Christ, had you been studying the Gospels where he mentions these prophecies and where he prepares Christians for this moment, you had a significant advantage over everybody else. Because conventional wisdom would tell you this. If you were a Jew living in Jerusalem and you saw this Roman army rolling up over the, the horizon, what would you do? You would do what every other person has done up to that point. You would run into the city where you were behind the gates, put up the, the door, shut the gates, and you would be safe in there. So whenever a battle like this was going to take place, you would run towards the city, run into the city. Jesus is teaching something here that is totally against conventional wisdom. He would say, when that time comes, the worst thing you can do is run into the city. You need to head for the hills. You need to flee to the mountains. If you want to survive that moment, you got to run and not towards the city, away from it. And uh, let me just tell you, when you look into the history books, Titus, he killed 1.1 million Jews. 1.1 million Jews. Josephus is the one recording all of this, and so he's a lot of the information that we reference for this. 1.1 million Jews, and among them were no Christians, because the Christians ran. And that's how Christianity began to really thrive, because they listened to Jesus and his prophecy. He, he had another warning for them, though. Let's pick up at verse uh, 19. He, he's explaining this day. For in those days, there will be such great tribulation as, not, as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the, Lord, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So he's saying here, this this slaughter is going to be so incredibly bad, it's going to be like something you've never seen before. Can you imagine 1.1 million bodies laying around? 1.1 million bodies. Where do you put 
1.1 million bodies. I mean, they're stacked everywhere and killed in just a, especially gruesome ways. And, and, and Jesus, in his prophecy, says it's going to be awful. It's going to be worst case scenario imaginable. It's going to be terrible. But God will limit it. For the sake of the elect, he's going to shorten those days. Can you imagine being one of the Jews there who ran into the city and maybe somehow you survived the slaughter and you're just witnessing it? How helpless would you feel? Imagine how vulnerable. Everything you have is taken away from you. Every, everything that is sacred to you is, is destroyed. All these blasphemous things taking place. When, when, you're, when you're desperate, that's when you're most susceptible to false teaching. That's, that when you're desperate and things are really, really bad, that's when you're most likely to follow just about anyone. And so Jesus warns against that too. Look at verse 21 through 23. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. So earlier in those first 13 verses last week, Jesus said, hey, there's going to be a lot of people claiming they're the Messiah. They're going to say they're the guy. It's going to be leading up to the destruction of the temple. And now he's saying when it gets really, really close, whenever that army arrives, that's when it's going to crescendo into a lot of noise. Hey, I, I'm the Messiah. I'm the guy that's going to, going to deliver us from this moment. He said there's going to be a lot of people doing this. They're going to be claiming to do signs and wonders. And sure enough, when you read in the history books, like Josephus, that's what you read about. He'll describe this in his history, as he's recording history. He, he'll say, yeah, at that point in time, because Josephus was a big player in this day. He's that historian that's Jewish, and he, I mean, he would interact with Titus. He's negotiating with Titus. This, this Josephus is a very significant historical figure. And so he, he writes in there that, sure enough, false prophets were rising up. He had people claiming to be the Messiah. They were claiming to do these signs and wonders, and just like Jesus said they would. Just like Jesus said they would. Jesus was preparing them for the imposters that always come when people are desperate. And when you read through the New Testament, you might say, Cody, that's one of your favorite things to talk about. You talk about false teachers all the time. You're always warning about false teaching and stuff like that. Well, that's because when you teach through books of the Bible, that subject comes up over and over and over again. I don't even talk about it necessarily because I like to. Right? I talk about it because when you're reading through books of the Bible and you're teaching through books of the Bible, it comes up over and over and over again constantly look out for the imposters look out for false teaching here's the gospel so when they say the gospel is something else you'll know that's wrong and you can say they're wrong and that's the loving thing to do and and scripture equips us to be able to do that but you know teaching against false teaching and warning people to guard themselves against false teaching that is such a high priority in the new testament that it needs to be a high priority for us why would you not want that to be a high priority for you and your church Jesus made such a big deal about it, keeps talking about it, and he's doing it right here. He's saying, hey, just know, people are going to tell you lies during this point. You're going to feel desperate. You're going to feel vulnerable, and that's when people listen to anything. Don't be one of those people. Don't be one of those people. He's protecting. He's shepherding his people. That's what love looks like when you're shepherding people. So now, Jesus he has more to say. There's more to look out for. We're going through verse 31 today. I told you, we're, we're going to bite off more than we can chew today. We're going to bite off more than we can chew. But I figure this was, this was ideal rather than spending the next 12 weeks in this chapter. <laughs> but we're going to keep going. So is Jesus still talking about the destruction of the temple? Or is he talking about his second coming in this next paragraph? Let's read verses 24 through 27 
It's titled The Coming of the Son of Man. Let's, let's see. But in those days, after the tribulation, after that tribulation, sorry, that's an important word, don't want to mess that up. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the, the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Okay. So, is he talking about the destruction of the temple still? Or is he talking about his second coming? Well, I'm going to tell you every verse we're reading today is about the destruction of the temple. And I'm going to tell you today, there's a lot of people that would disagree with me, okay? <laughs> and I've already told you that up front. And there's a lot of good arguments against what I have to say. And there's a lot of good arguments that are in line with what I'm teaching you today. But just hear me out if this sounds weird. You've never heard a preach like this before. I think there's a good reason to think this way. Here's one of the most challenging things, when you're, especially when you're studying eschatology, the, the study of the end of time. How do you know how literal to take everything? We, we all know that when we're reading through Scripture, there's a lot of symbolism that's used to teach things. But we also know that if we, go, if we run wild with, with uh, the thought that everything is symbolic, we can come to all sorts of weird conclusions. And so there's always this tension with translators and teachers of Scripture. Uh, how literal do I take this? Or how symbolic is this? Because, we all, because symbolism is used all over the place too. Like when Jesus says, I am the gate... Obviously, that's symbolic language. None of us in here think that he, say, he is saying, I am a chain-link fence that, that opens on a hinge, and I can rust. That's not what Jesus means when he says, I am the gate. Obviously, that's symbolic language, right? So we all know and agree that symbolism is used all over the place. And it's a lot of times when you're studying end times, that symbolism is amplified. Okay, so... so he says, after that tribulation, after that destruction of the temple, all of these uh, celestial events are going to occur. The sun, the moon, the stars. Is the sun going to flip off like a switch? The sun just going to like all of a sudden turn off and therefore the moon doesn't shine anymore? Are the stars falling in the sky? Does that mean are they just going to be swirling around and just there's ca celestial chaos when we look up into the sky? Is that what literally is going to happen? Or is this symbolic? Is this symbolism? I think it's symbolism, and I'll tell you why. When you're reading the Old Testament prophets, they talk like this. And so in the same way that Jesus borrowed that Old Testament lingo from Daniel, the abomination of desolation, I think he's also borrowing from prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel and Amos, because they all have language just like this. Let me give them just some examples. These are the ones you want to write down and study later. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. God's talking about judgment, his judgment on Babylon. And it talks about the stars and the sun and the moon in the same way. They're going to be darkened. In Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 7, you can see Ezekiel prophesying and talking about God's judgment on Egypt. He uses this exact same language. You know, the stars are going dark, the sun's covered up, the moon's gone. Isaiah ch uh, chapter 34, verse 4, he's talking about his judgment on Edom. Sure enough, you go there, the it, same language is being used. The sky's going to roll up like a scroll. Well, did the sky actually roll up like a scroll? What's that mean? What's that look like? Did that literally happen? 
Well, I think it's symbolic language because when you look in the Old Testament, you can go to Joel and Amos as well, you, you find language in there every time God's judgment comes in the form of like political or national uh, upheaval. It's spoken of like these celestial events rearranging the sky because your world as you know it is being turned upside down. Everything that functions in a way is being resorted and, and, and swirled around and, and God's judgment is coming in, in the form of a foreign nation taking over. But this time, Jesus is using this language to say that, that judgment, that political and national upheaval, oh, that's coming for you guys. That's coming for Jerusalem right now, and it's going to happen in the form of the destruction of the temple. That moment is going to be a display of my power and of my glory. This is the Son of Man coming in on clouds with great power and glory. That's what he's referring to when he's talking about this judgment that is coming. And he's saying, now wait a second, Cody. He, okay, that, the Son of Man, he says the Son of Man, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. How can that not be in reference to his second coming? Here's my argument. When you turn the page to Mark chapter 14, verse 62, we're going to be studying that in the coming weeks. Jesus is standing before the high priest, and he's being, uh, being interrogated there. Are you the Christ? Just say it. Are you the Messiah? Just admit it or not. Are you he? Are you the Messiah? Jesus says, I am. And you, looking at that high priest, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of glory, with, the, with clouds of heaven. In Matthew, it says it like this, and you, from now on, will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of glory. He's telling him he's going to see it. So how could Caiaphas see the second coming? Did Caiaphas see the second coming? You and I haven't seen the second coming. Caiaphas is long gone. He didn't see the second coming. So I think Jesus was referring to the, the destruction of the temple. That was a display of his power and a display of his glory. And when they're all concentrating and converging on, on Jerusalem for safety, they're going to be slaughtered while the Christians scatter to the, the, to the mountains with the gospel. And it's going to go to the ends of the earth from that point. And it did. It went to the four corners of the, of the earth. It's all over the place. And, and the gospel is being taken Surely angels are ministering to God's people as they are taking the gospel out and he is gathering his elect. Christianity is thriving and has scattered across the globe. That's the way I understand that paragraph. And I'll remind you, I'll remind you, a lot of people would argue against that. They'd say, no, that's actually a reference to the second coming. Cody's wrong. But my biggest piece of evidence hasn't come yet. Here's my biggest piece of evidence that I think he's talking about the destruction of the temple. And I think this is, this, is the real, this is the nail in the coffin for me. Read verses 28 through 31 with me. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Listen to this. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Hmm. Let me read it again. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This generation? What do you mean, this generation? It kind of sounds like he's talking about that generation, doesn't it? That's the, that's the, I mean, if you just take it at face value, it kind of sounds like he's saying, this generation of people that are alive right now, 
uh, they're going to be the people that witness all the things I've been talking about. And, and, and this generation means that generation. Now, when you, when you read, and I, w- I wish I could have brought my commentaries. So, you know, the stack comes up to here. And uh, there's arguments against that. And some scholars will say this. Here's the, I like to give both sides of the argument just because this is what I'm studying. A lot of people will say, well, when he says this generation, he's speaking in broader terms than that. It means like era. And so this generation means a new era of time. The, the, the old era was Judaism. The new era is the, the Christian church that had just begun. And so that generation, as in us, will not pass away until these things take place. That is a tremendous amount of mental gymnastics for me. I can't get on board with that argument. It's just not compelling enough. So for me, I just take it at face value because, you know, it's pretty plain. It's pretty plain. So I think this generation meant the people that were there. Uh, and he says, hey, listen, all these things are a certainty. You can, you can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. My word is eternal. Only God gets to say stuff like that, right? Must have been so terrifying. Can you, again, like, I, I, always, I think it's so important to put ourselves in the shoes of first century Christians and, the, and put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples in the midst of the, this moment so that we can really take in what this is meaning. Can you imagine how vulnerable and how terrifying this would be to hear these things? How much of their identity is wrapped up in the temple? No Christian, no Christian then would have want, wanted the temple to be destroyed. To you and I, we're not emotionally attached to the temple. We don't find our identity in the temple in any way. We're not, most of us here, we're just like, okay, the temple's a thing, but we really couldn't say much about the temple. Like, but for a first century believer, a Jewish convert to, Christian, to the Christian faith, they would have, that would have been an awful thought. The temple, no, that is so valuable. That is so sacred. That's God's footstool on this earth. They would not have wanted anything to happen to the temple. And Jesus is saying, there is not going to be one stone left upon another. It's going to come tumbling down. It's going to be completely destroyed. Everything you know is going to be flipped upside down in this moment. It's going to feel like celestial chaos. It must have been so disorienting, so outrageous to try to think like this. But he wanted his followers to endure, so he was preparing them for something that they were going to experience firsthand. He wanted to equip them in a way that their identity wouldn't be wrapped up in that temple anymore. Because if it was, they wouldn't have any identity left. They wanted their identity to be wrapped up in him and what he was doing. He wanted that generation of followers to, as they saw those events unfolding, be equipped to endure, to live with assurance and even that destruction of the temple, as horrifying as it would be to, to witness and to see, that was confirmation to them that Jesus was who he said he was, that Jesus was indeed speaking the truth. They had a tremendous amount of assurance that God would gather his elect from all over the planet whenever they saw that temple coming crumbling down. Jesus was right, and here's what he said would happen immediately after those things happened. And so a new generation of, of, of people there living with assurance and, and able to persevere because of the words of Jesus. And so you and I, when we study this, we may think, why do we need to study this? Why do we need to understand about these events if they've already happened? Why do we need to read Mark chapter 13 and understand Jesus' prophecy if it's not something that's ahead of us? Well, you and I should find the same amount of assurance here so that we, you and I can persevere too. 
When Jesus says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. I see the destruction of the temple in this fulfilled prophecy as a down payment for his second coming. It's it's a down payment. It's it's telling us, it's like a dress rehearsal. I think it's going to be like that in a lot of ways. And we're going to be prepared to persevere. Things can get worse and worse and worse. And we have our identity wrapped up in all sorts of things, right? And if things go bad, we don't know if we're a Christian anymore. And and if the world isn't functioning the way I want it to or the way I'm used to it functioning, then, oh, man, how is the church going to make it? I just don't know. It seems like churches are dying. Oh, no, people are becoming less Christian. What's happening? And we start to think evil is winning and good is losing. We get so, we're, we're meant to study moments like this to, to say to us, hey, it's been way worse. It's been way worse. You don't even know the beginning of chaos. And let me just tell you, even in the midst of that, you can live with assurance. Even in the midst of that, you can live with hope. You can live with a certainty that God is sovereign and things are going to unfold, unfold exactly how he intends them to unfold. All of this falls under his providence. He's the beginning and the end. You can't apply time to him. You can't, you don't have to worry about these results because he's sitting outside of time and he sees the results and he's equipping us to persevere. You're going to get to the point in which I restore all things, trust me. You're going to get to the point in which I return and I'm going to restore this corrupt, broken, sinful world to paradise and you're going to endure to the end because you're going to hold on to beliefs like this and examples like this And that's what's going to get you there. By my spirit, you're going to persevere to the end. This is how he holds us and protects us and carries us through the darkest seasons imaginable. So if we don't know this, we're not going to be equipped. We're not going to be ready. Because just as I mentioned the announcements earlier, like you may be in a great season, but it's going to pass. You may be in a dark season, it's going to pass. But we can endure in the dark seasons and the bad seasons of life because we know God is sovereign, and we're, we're in his hands, and we're resting in his gospel, and that's what gives us peace. Let's pray. Lord, again, I'm just thankful for a church that's willing to study through chapters of the Bible, like chapter 13. I am just overwhelmed at everything there is to research and study, but Lord, at the same time, I think some of, the, some of the passages like these are, are the, it's like therapy. Lord, it's, it's just so soothing to know that things can be so dark and so wrong, and yet you can use the darkest seasons of, light, of life to accomplish your will. Like, that's how sovereign you are. Lord, the worst thing that's ever happened is, is, is your son being executed on the cross. That's the darkest, most corrupt moment. A sinless man being killed for the sins of the world. But yet that darkest moment is where our hope lies in salvation. You, you, you took that which seems so awful and you did something so amazing Lord, because you are sovereign. Help us to rest in that. Help us to find peace in that. And Lord, as we walk into a time of communion, help us to remember it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.